This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Hayesville, North Carolina. Welcome to a Wednesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. Beautiful day down here in the mountains of western North Carolina. Glad you could be with us this morning. A little bit of a grab bag this morning. It wasn't the busiest night in professional sports last night or college sports, but uh, we do have a few things to talk about. I'm going to start this morning talking about the Olympics. Believe it or not, it's three weeks away. I, You know, I love the Olympics. Um, it's not the way it was. You know, it was, uh, I guess, a lot more, uh, I don't know if romantic is the right word, but the, the Olympics were uh, a different when I was growing up, of course, because it was amateur athletes. Now that's everybody's a professional athlete. Now, we're not going to have the uh, professional hockey players there, but we will have college players. But uh, everybody has got endorsements. Everybody is a pro at some level. It's not the way it used to be. But I still love the Olympics, seeing, uh, you know, countries that uh, can't stand each other, for for lack of a better way of putting it, facing each other uh, in Olympic sports. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, However, um, amongst the backdrop of this, you know, there is some concern about the Olympics and where they're located. Look, they're in China. All right. We, you know, they've been in Beijing a couple of times now in the last 20 years uh, for a, a big reason. Why? Because China wants the platform and China isn't afraid to spend the money to host the Olympics. So the Olympic organizing committees are going to uh, uh, or the International Olympic Committee is going to jump at that. There aren't a lot of countries that want to host the Olympics these days because it's prohibitively expensive. It's not like, you know, we'll slap up a couple of buildings. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars to host an Olympic Games. And and now in this pandemic era where you, you're, not, you're not even going to have fans in, in a lot of cases and, you, uh, you know, you don't get any revenue from that and it's just, it's different. I mean, all the money really for the International Olympic Committee comes from the broadcasting rights. But at the end of the day, um, countries still can't afford this. I mean, you can literally bankrupt a country by trying to host an Olympic Games. And China is uh, not afraid to spend the money, and they are all about uh, calling attention to their country and trying to put lipstick on a pig, as it were, to use the old uh, Sarah Palin uh, line from a presidential election. You know, But at the end of the day, it's still a pig. And here's the problem. There are actual concerns that Olympic athletes, if they speak out against the host country, if they, in their post-match you know, uh, or post-game press conferences, come out and say things about China's human rights record and what's going on in Hong Kong and Tibet um, and wh- how they're treating the, uh, uh, the Muslims in their country, 
uh, Taiwan, all that stuff, that they could actually be prosecuted. Now, I think it highly unlikely, and I would think that the International Olympic Committee and the uh, Olympic Committees of the individual countries will find ways to shield their athletes, but the IOC has come out and said that the athletes will have freedom of speech at the Winter Games when speaking to journalists or when they're posting on social media. So the IOC has said, have at it. But the Olympic Charter actually prohibits political protests at medal ceremonies, Okay, and which is fine. But it also requires that applicable public laws be followed. Well, as we know in the People's Republic of China, the laws are whatever China says the laws are at that minute. And so nobody really knows how Chinese laws are going to apply at these games. You know, uh, as, as some human rights activists have, have said, you know, that the Chinese laws are vague on the crimes uh, they can use to prosecute prosecute people's free speech. Look, they're doing it all the time in Hong Kong now. Once Hong Kong got turned over, they have cracked down mightily there. So, I, you know, again, do I think that this, the, the athletes should be concerned about this? Yeah, I kind of do. But at the same time, I don't think China is going to risk an international incident and get everybody in the world aligned against them. And I don't care who you are. You know, I don't care if it's a, and, and I don't think a Russian athlete would do it, but if somebody from Russia came out and spoke against China, can you imagine if China arrested that athlete, what would happen? <laughs> Vladimir Putin would probably have the bombers in the air immediately. But but that aside, I believe that everyone else at the Olympic Games, including the United States and Great Britain and anybody else, would rally behind the Russians against China. You know, so I don't think... You know, I, well, I shouldn't say I don't think. I don't know if China is going to w- want to run that risk, but, you know, they had to know when they agreed to host these games, you know, they might be able to suppress their own people. But how are you going to do that with people from other countries? And a lot of human rights activists are actually asking athletes to avoid criticizing China which is kind of counterintuitive when you think about it. But I think a lot of the activists are concerned that athletes will get prosecuted or arrested or at least made an example of. I don't think they're going to spend, you know, 20 years in jail in China. I don't think they're going to be put in front of a firing squad. But I could see, you know, Chinese officials trying to make a big deal if some high-profile athlete, I don't know who that would be, one of the big figure skaters or something like that, were to uh, speak out against what they're doing in Hong Kong or, or wherever. And, you know, and a lot of the activists are saying, look, you know, we get it. We're, we're on your side, but maybe you might want to just keep your mouth shut until you get home. But it, it's something, you know, I, it's something to think about. I mean, I guess it's, it, I guess it's a concern. If I was an Olympic athlete, I think I would be concerned. Matter of fact, I think I would shut my mouth. It doesn't mean uh, that when I got home, I wouldn't skewer them. But they can't touch me when I'm here. 
And and, I, and again, I don't I don't think anybody's spending you know time in a gulag. Although don't, I guess they're probably not called gulags in China. But anyway, you get my point. Uh, so it, it'll be something worth watching as uh, as we get closer to the Olympics. Now, on a on a brighter side of Olympic news, the Jamaican bobsled team, the four-man bobsled team, is going to be back at the Winter Olympics for the first time in 24 years. Now, if you remember, we I'm sure we've all seen the movie Cool Runnings, which was really cool. Uh, you know, the movie they made about the uh, 1988 Calgary Games when they uh, made their Olympic debut, uh, they failed to finish, you know, every you know, all that. It's a great, but it was a great story. It was a fun story. You know, a country that hasn't seen a lick of snow with a bobsled team. Well, they not only do they have their four-man team, it, now it's the first time that the four-man has been back at the Olympics um, since... I think 1998 in Nagano. They've had two-man sleds in recent events or in recent Olympic Games, but they haven't had a four-man one since 1998. So it's pretty cool. Uh, The pilot is supposed to be a guy by the name of uh, Sean Wayne Stevens, uh, who is actually a lance corporal in the Royal Air Force. Uh, And a guy that, by the way, one of his uh, training regiments, uh, he pushes a Mini Cooper. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, anyway, so they're back in the That's just kind of a cool story. They, I saw him on a Today Show this morning. But there's going to be some other athletes there. I mean, some some unlikely athletes in the Olympic Games this year. You know, The Jamaicans are a story. But, you know, they've been there before. But it's still kind of cool to see them back. But how about this? How about uh, American Samoa is going to have a guy in the men's skeleton? American Samoa is going to have somebody at the Winter Olympics for, like, only the second time ever. Um. Haiti is going to have an alpine skier. Haiti! Good good Lord. Uh, there's going to be a cross-country skier from Nigeria. First time Nigeria has ever had a skier. Uh, Puerto Rico, another country without snow. They're going to have somebody in the women's skeleton. And it's the first female Winter Olympian for Puerto Rico in 34 years. And then Saudi Arabia is going to have its first Winter Olympian. A male alpine skier. I, I love this. We have alpine skiers in countries that don't. Haiti, there's no snow there. Uh, how about in Brazil? They're going to have a mogul skier. So American Samoa, you know, on the ice. It's great. And then Trinidad and Tobago is also going to have a bobsled team. They are going to be in the two-man event. It is their first Winter Olympics uh, since 2002. But pretty cool. Uh, and, again, that's see, that's what the Olympic Games are about, to see Little countries like this on the big stage, you know they're not going to win a medal. But, hey, it's kind of like, you know, when the number one team, uh, football team in the country, plays the number 200 team in the country. Until the final whistle blows, you still got a chance, right? So, you know, hope springs eternal. And, but that's what the Olympic Games are about. It's what they're fun. It's why they're fun. You know, unfortunately, having them in a communist country and a repressive country like China uh, is unfortunate. But, you know, I mean, what? Uh, again, when it, it's, it's all about the money, you know, we've talked about that on this program before. I don't know, you know, how long, well, I shouldn't say how long we're going to have the, we're going to have the Olympics, but how we may find that the rotation for the Olympic games ends up being between two or three countries on a consistent basis, because they'll already have the venues that they built 
for other Olympics. That's you know in Beijing they're using a lot of the same uh, facilities that they used when they hosted their last Olympics. Um, you know, so I think that that that's what we may see is that countries that have already built the infrastructure for an Olympic Games. That's what we kind of like the NFL does, right? When they rotate the Super Bowl around to, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a handful of, you know, maybe six or seven different sites that they that they feel, you know, warm weather sites. But it may be that with the Olympic Games that we get to, you know, two, three, four countries that and, and it'll just be on a regular rotating basis. And unfortunately, at least for now, China is one of those countries. Um, a couple of quick non-sports things. Although this is kind of uh, it, a couple of sports figures have gotten involved in the whole uh, voting rights bill thing. Nick Saban, the head coach at the University of Alabama, football coach. Uh, Jerry West, the NBA great, um, along with a few other uh, sports figures, have all signed a letter urging Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democratic senator, to support the voting rights bill. I am. It would, the letter was actually uh, signed by the former West Virginia AD Oliver Luck, of course, who was a former NFL player, uh, along with uh, Paul Tagliabue, uh, Daryl Ting, uh, Daryl Talley, who used to play for the Buffalo Bills. Um, Nick Saban doesn't usually get involved too much in politics, but they are all saying, "Look, it, we need to, you know, to pass this." And the voting rights, but look, it's important, you know, with what's going on in this country right now and uh, the access to voting being restricted in a lot of states you know this is one of those where look every if if uh if you want everybody can get an absentee ballot you know they expanding voter registration making election day a federal holiday which i think is a great idea uh but republicans are all against it but the problem is is that we have two democratic senators that are fighting this thing now here's part of the problem and nick saban there was actually a little footnote at the bottom of this letter that saban signed that said Saban's not in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. And and if I'm not mistaken, uh, Joe Manchin and his Democratic colleague that, are, that have been against this are not against the voting rights bill per se. They're going to support the voting rights bill. What they're not going to support, it, do, it seems, from what I understand, is the changing of the Senate rules to do away with the filibuster. And look, I'm not going to pretend to you that I am some uh, great uh, legislative scholar that I know all the workings, uh, the ins and outs. And uh, Frank Moriarty, my college uh, history pre- professor, is probably uh, you know uh, very disappointed at me. But uh, I'm not going to pretend that I know all the rules. I do know this, you know, and by by doing a, away with the filibuster, what it does is that it would allow the Democrats to pass this bill without uh, any Republican support. Right now, a bill can be filibustered in the Senate if it doesn't have 60 votes. So if if, if, if that bill was exempt from the filibuster and uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin uh, voted for it, the bill would pass even if it was a 50-50 vote, because the tie-breaking vote, of course, comes from the vice president, Kamala Harris, and so the bill would pass. But if the filibuster's in there, they they won't be able to do that. Now, again, I'm not some kind of, you know, scholar here, 
But here's the part that I, I think the Democrats want to be careful here. I get the idea you want to push this voting legislation through. And I'm, and, and I'm in favor of it, by the way. However, the issue becomes the following. If you change the rules, the rules don't change for just this bill. They change permanently. And then what happens if all of a sudden you don't have that majority in the Senate and the Republicans take it over, well, then the Republicans can use that against you. So you're setting it up that, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you could win the battle, but you could lose the war. You know, if the midterm elections come up next year and all of a sudden, uh, you know, let's say the Republicans have a one-seat advantage, you're in trouble. You've set yourself up and you are in big trouble. Or, you know, or if in the next election, even if it stays 50-50 and in the next election, a Republican wins the House, I mean, wins the White House, then you've screwed yourself by doing away with the filibuster rule. You know, I, and I'm sure there are people out there that are smarter than I am that could explain this much, much more eloquently than I can. But again, to me, uh, you know, it just seems like it's a recipe for disaster. Not now, but maybe three years from now, if God forbid, and I probably shouldn't say this down here in North Carolina, but if God forbid Donald Trump gets back in the White House, God forbid. Um, anyway, uh Let's get to sports, and and I want to start before we. Uh, I want to get into the UConn game from last night, uh, number twenty-five UConn with an easy win last night. Uh, but before I do that, I want to congratulate Dama More, uh, old buddy of mine uh, that I have known for a number of years, uh, for winning the Connecticut Sports Writer of the Year award. He was selected uh, by the National Sports Media Association yesterday, um, and uh, it's the sixth time that he has been named the Sports Writer of the Year. Uh, in the state of Connecticut. Look, he's been with the Hartford Current for, oh, God, 35 years, something like that. A guy that's covered high school. He's covered the he covered the Hartford Whalers. Uh, he, he's been on the Giants beat, the Yankees, UConn. Uh, this is a guy that is a Hall of Fame voter. He's covered 10 World Series, eight Super Bowls. He's been at a whole bunch of uh, men's and women's Final Fours. Uh, he covered the Red Sox. He and I used to run into each other at Red Sox games up in the press box all the time. Uh, a guy who's a Connecticut native, uh, teaches at Southern Connecticut State University in Central uh, Connecticut on his, uh, on his off, off times. Uh, and, and he's a, a great guy. I wrote a great book about the Yankees, even though I'm not a Yankee fan. I, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Dom, so I, I bought his Yankee book and supported it. Um, but uh, congratulations to Dom. Uh, very well deserved the Connecticut Sports Writer of the Year. Uh, so I mentioned UConn, and uh, it was an easy one last night. Look, uh, UConn has uh, had a rough, a rough go of it. They're number 25 in the country. They've got four losses. Those four losses are by a combined 14 points. Even when they've won sometimes, uh, they've been nail biters. You know, they had that win against uh, uh, St. John's last week. I mean, they had a big lead uh, late in the first half, they, or late in the second half, and they blew it, had to win it in overtime. Look, that's what they've done all year. It's been – it's been they just can't find ways to finish games. Well, last night they had a rare 
uh, breather. They played Butler last night uh, in Hartford. Actually, it was at Campbell Pavilion up in stores. And they absolutely drilled them. 76-59. This game was never in doubt. Uh, just a dominating effort. R.J. Cole with a big game, 17 points. Adama Sanogo, who was just named the Big East Player of the Week uh, on Monday, 13 points, 15 rebounds. It's his fourth straight double-double. Uh, Jordan Hawkins with a nice game. Uh, he had 14 points last night. But it was a an easy win. I mean, UConn took care of the basketball. I think they only turned it over nine times. Uh, and it didn't get off to a great start. It took them damn near three minutes to get on the board. Uh, but then after that, UConn kind of took over. And as I said, they led 34-29 at the intermission. They held Butler to just eight for 30 shooting in the first half. Uh, so just a dominating effort, a win that UConn needed. They are now 12-4, and four, uh, three and 3-2 in the Big East. Look, this team is really good. If they can, you know, if they can stay, they got to stay healthy, and they got to ride Adama Sanogo. I mean, I think they have finally figured out that the offense needs to run through the big guy. You know, uh, seven for twenty-two in threes last night was UConn thirty-one, thirty-two percent. Yeah, it's oh, it's all right. You know, but they can't fall in love with that. They just have to run the ball through the big guy, take care of the basketball. They out-rebounded uh, Butler last night, 49-29. Uh, Jackson also had a double-double, by the way, uh, 12 points and 10 rebounds. But, uh, uh, again, just nine turnovers. That's the kind of effort they need. And 10 block shots. A cook, a cook actually played a little bit last night, played like 20 minutes, uh, blocked three shots. Sonogo had four blocks last night. That's one of the calling cards of that UConn defense is they are blocking shots like it's no tomorrow. So an easy one. Now they will turn around and play Butler again. This game that last night was originally scheduled for January 1st, got postponed because of the whole COVID thing. So they're now going to have a uh, a home and home. They're going to play back to back. They will play at Butler on Thursday and obviously the Huskies will be looking to uh, repeat that performance. But last night was uh, outside of the the slow start, it was pretty much a perfect game and uh, we'll see if they can continue that uh, on the road. Uh, the other news uh, from UConn that was in the current this morning is that uh, the UConn Athletic Department uh, has a deficit of $47.2 million. It is one of the largest deficits in college athletics in the country. Now, you know, they, they've said it's unsustainable. Hey, no kidding. Here's the thing, though. And, and we all look – Every athletic department took a hit the last couple of years because of the pandemic. You know, you're playing games in front of fans. I mean, you you lose millions of dollars when you can't sell tickets to basketball games and to football games. You know, you take a hit. There's no question about that. Um, they had they reported 17.6 million dollars less in revenue than they had the previous year. Again, it makes sense based on what happened, and there were no no butts in the seats. But this number is deceiving. And, and I, this is one of the things that I, I've argued against from the time. I worked in college athletics for 25 years. It's one of the things that always drove me nuts. That's not a real number. Why? Because what happens is, is that the athletic department gets charged, quote-unquote charged, for the tuition of athletes 
when really wh- why are we counting that why are we counting that against the it's not like money is changing hands between the athletic department and the business department or the english department well, you know what i mean so i mean it's they're getting a scholarship to come to yukon so they're coming there tuition free but that doesn't mean that uh, the school is losing money. Look, uh, here's the thing. You know, they were going, you could still, you know, let's say there's, I, I don't know how many scholarship athletes are there are at UConn, I, I'll be honest with you. But let's say, let's say there's, uh, let's be conservative. Let's say there's 400. There's probably more than that. But let's say there's 400. Well, you know, if if they were that concerned about the tuition, they could hire or they could hire. They could uh, you know uh, enroll four hundred more undergraduates that are going to be paying tuition uh, to make up for those four hundred that are going to be um, uh, on scholarship. But those four hundred are not you know there's not money being changed between departments. So to to charge that to the athletic department to me is absolutely ludicrous. So let's just say, you know, uh, there's 400 athletes. And I don't, the tuition at UConn is somewhere in the neighborhood of about, I would say, $20,000. That doesn't include room and board. That's another, that's a whole other issue. The, the, the board part of it, the food part of it, I can get because you still have to pay the uh, the food service that provides that. But again, the rooms, uh, if, if you want to count that, uh, you already have the buildings, right? It's not costing you anything to house them. You already have the buildings. But let's just say, for argument's sake, it's $20,000, and there's 400 athletes. That's $8 bucks. So that deficit that they say is $37 million is now all of a sudden not 37 it's 39 39 million dollars now that's still a lot of money don't get me wrong and maybe it's more than 400 athletes and maybe it's more than $20,000 but let's just say for the hell of it you know you could probably write 10 million off of that right away just because of scholarships and the other part of it is um the the rent that UConn pays to uh for for instance um to use the XL center or to use uh Rentschler Field, which is absolutely ludicrous, where their football team plays. Uh, but any rent that they pay, th- that is it goes to the Capital Region Development Authority, which, which for all intents and purposes is more of a budget transfer because it's part of the, the Connecticut state system. So, you know, this $47 million is kind of an artificial figure. It's probably more, to be honest with you, it's probably more in the range of $30 million. Now, I'm not saying that's great. But the numbers aren't, you know, they're not real. And then when you take into consideration the fact that they're going to have the, you know, we, we, we had full, you know, we have full seats or, or full capacity at Rentschler Field. Uh, well, not at Rentschler Field because they stink. But full capacity at Campbell Pavilion for men's and women's basketball. Uh, the hockey team draws well. You know, whatever revenue they get from the games that they have uh, at the Hartford Civic Center. Look, there are... Uh, they're going to have revenue streams. They're still going to have a deficit. And by the way, this also doesn't account for um, the cuts that they made in some sports. Uh, they cut men's tennis and men's swimming uh, and diving, and they cut men's cross country. Uh, they tried to cut women's rowing, but that has been reinstated because of a Title IX lawsuit. Uh, 
But at the end of the day, this number is not real. It's concerning, I mean, obviously, but it's not $47.2 million. I still don't understand the whole tuition swapping thing. I just think it's crazy. Uh, one of the quick basketball note, uh, Duke lost again. Number six Duke uh, fell to Florida State last night. They lost uh, in overtime um, and 79-78. Florida State actually had a pretty big lead. Uh, let it get away late, but uh, Raekwon Evans a couple of free throws with 12 seconds left in the overtime and then a big uh, block shot on a driving layup with two seconds left and Florida State uh, beats Duke. Uh, look, for Florida State's not a bad team. They're 11-5. and five. They're 5-2 and two in the ACC, so it's not like they're a bad team, but it's the first time that they have beaten a, a, a ranked Duke team since 2017. Uh, so it's not uh, it's they don't beat Duke when they're pretty good very often. Uh, Paulo Banchero, by the way, another big game for Duke. <coughs> Excuse me, 20 points, 12 rebounds. It's the fourth straight game uh, that he's had 20 more. This kid, is, this freshman kid, is really good. You know, you know what that tells you? He's going to be there uh, for this year, and he probably probably isn't coming back. Uh, he'll go right to the NBA. Duke is going to host Syracuse on Saturday. Syracuse a 500 team right now, so Duke has a chance to get healthy there. And then Florida State will have an easy one on, on Thursday with uh, North Florida. That's one of those guarantee games that uh, you pay them to come in so that you can beat the crap out of them. It's 35 minutes past the hour. We're going to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 38 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. To the wake-up call from our beautiful new studio here in Hayesville, North Carolina. Um, we're not quite done, but I posted uh, a picture yesterday on Facebook, uh, if you're interested in what it looks like. But uh, uh, we're getting there. Uh, we'll, we should hope to have it done uh, here in the next uh, couple of weeks. we still got a couple of we still got one wall we have to put up. Uh, right now, my office is uh, kind of in the studio. It's kind of like in this huge room. Uh, downstairs in our our new home here, but we're going to put another wall up, kind of make it a little cozier, and hopefully make the uh, uh, the acoustics a little bit better too. Uh, so, uh, but uh, if you're interested in what it looks like, you can find it on our Facebook page. Uh, and uh, uh, my wife uh, has spoiled the hell out of me. I'm honest to God, she's she has gone out of her way to make sure that uh, uh, that I have been comfortable here, that uh, we have been able to. Uh, get the station continue to run it's been a little challenging because of the internet but uh, she has been great and uh, I, I can't not i can't thank her enough uh for everything that she's done to help keep this uh, radio station going uh, by the way i'm going to get my uh, booster shot today so i'm uh, i'm sure there won't be any problems i didn't have problems with the first two but you know it's funny uh i was watching the uh, uh the news last night now we get all our news here on direct tv um there's no fiber out here, so really couldn't get cable. So uh, DirecTV was my only option, uh, and all our local channels are from Atlanta. I mean, when I, even though I live in North Carolina, I can't get a North Carolina station, which is frustrating as hell, but be that as it may. Uh, so I'm watching it, and uh, last night on the news in Atlanta, they said the positivity rate in the state of Georgia for COVID is 28%. Good Lord. Uh, of course, you know, there's a lot of people that don't, aren't going to get vaccines down here, don't believe in it and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I went yesterday uh, to the local pharmacy and said, hey, um, you know, I need to get it. I want to get the booster shot because I tried to get it before I moved down here. And it was going to take me like three weeks to get an appointment. And then with uh, with the move going on, I really so I, I just didn't have an opportunity to get it done while I was up there. So I walk in yesterday and uh, to, to get the shot. And the guy says, well, how about tomorrow? Get you at noon. Excellent. 
you know, there's, and I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the guy actually seemed excited that I wanted to get a booster shot. He must not get a lot of calls for him. He seemed, he seemed very pumped up that I wanted one. So uh, going in to get that uh, at noon today. Uh, so I watched the uh, Bruins game last night in between uh, uh, watching the UConn game. And, but one of the things I, I wanted to see last night, they had the uh, uh, number retirement ceremony for Willie O'Ree last night. Uh, Well-deserved and long overdue, by the way. Willie O'Ree, uh, if you don't know who he is, he was the first black player to appear in an NHL game. Uh, and uh, uh, he played for the Bruins um, back in 1958. He got called up uh, from the minors. He was... Uh, He's from uh, Fredericton up in New Brunswick, and he was playing uh, down in the minor leagues, and the Bruins called him up to make his NHL debut against the Montreal Canadiens, a team that he root up, uh, grew up rooting for. Uh, but uh, he uh, played for them that season. Uh, he played just a couple of games that season, but then he spent the next two seasons back in the minors. But then he came back to Boston uh, for the 1960-61 season and played 43 games. Uh, for the Bruins that year, uh, a groundbreaker. Uh, you could, you know, he is essentially the Jackie Robinson of the NHL. Now he obviously didn't have Jackie Robinson's success uh, that you know the kind of success that Jackie Robinson had in baseball. But you cannot, you know, look, you cannot underestimate how difficult it was to have him. Uh, playing in the NHL, just black players didn't play. Now, the different, the other difference here is, and you cannot minimize this, when he played in the NHL, let's remember that the teams were either all in Canada or they were in the northern part of the United States. Willie O'Ree did not have to travel down south as a black man to, uh, you know, to play hockey. It's not like Jackie Robinson that had to go into the South, into places where black players were not able to play or to stay in the same hotels as their uh, their counterparts. I mean, it was it's a lot. It was a lot different atmosphere. Uh, but be that as it may, Willie O'Ree, who wore number twenty-two uh, for the Boston Bruins, had his number retired last night. He is the twelfth player uh, in franchise history to have his number retired by the Bruins. He actually wasn't there last night um, because of the whole pandemic thing, as you might imagine. Uh, he is not a young man anymore. Um, he is uh, in his 80s. So uh, they decided that he would uh, uh, appear from his home in San Diego, which he did. Uh, gave a very nice speech. Uh, Boston named yesterday Willie O'Ree Day, which is kind of cool. Uh, by the way, one one other quick thing about him before we move on. Uh, what made this all the more amazing, what he did, not just that he was black, he basically played with one eye. He is 95% blind in his right eye. So that kind of makes his accomplishments even more impressive. And, you, you know, I mean, and I'm not trying to, uh, to minimize it, but can you imagine, you know, maybe what kind of player he could have been if he had actually had two eyes and he still made the NHL with one eye. Pretty amazing. Uh, unfortunately for the Bruins, the feel-good uh, story of last night with Willie O'Ree did not carry over to the ice. The Bruins got absolutely horsewhipped last night by the Carolina Hurricanes. Carolina beat them 7-1. to This game was 2-0 before you sat down. 
I mean, it was unbelievable. Tuka Rask make his, made his second start of the season last night for the Bruins since uh, coming back from the surgery and everything and, you know, played really well his first time out. Well, last night he allowed five goals on 12 shots in the first period. I mean, it was so bad they had to get him the hell out of there. Uh, Linus Umark came in, played the rest of the game, uh, made 20 saves on 22 shots, uh, but it was all over. Uh, you know, and at one point, you know, they were down two nothing. The Bruins got a power play goal. So you're thinking, all right, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they can come back from this. We've seen the Bruins come back from some games earlier in the season. Uh, yeah. Well, right after they scored that power play goal, I think Carolina scored another goal within about two minutes and now it's three, one and it was the, the route was on. So it was a, uh, a brutal game for the Bruins. It's the first time, by the way, that they have allowed five goals in the opening period since 2008 when uh, Washington did it on the road, uh, or the Bruins were on the road. Uh, and the, the loss, obviously, losing by six goals, worst loss of the season for the Bruins. And, look, this is a Bruins team that won eight of nine. So they were coming and playing very well, and uh, they just uh, – it was a buzzsaw last night. Uh, so you just that's one of those you just flush it and, and you move on. Uh, the Bruins will host the Capitals um, at TD Garden on Thursday night. And then the Hurricanes uh, will return home. They will take on the New York Rangers uh, on Friday. Um, I caught the tail end of this one last night after the Bruins game was over. Um, the Nashville Predators, uh, kind of my team now, I guess, uh, now that I live down here, um, they uh, they lost last night to the Vancouver Canucks 3-1. Look, the Predators were one of the hottest teams in the NHL for a while. They were 12-1-1. Uh, over a 14-game stretch, but they have now lost four in a row. So they went from being in first place in their division to all of a sudden uh, not in first place and trying to figure out what in the hell happened. Well, last night it was uh, all about goaltending as uh, Thatcher Demko made 31 saves for the Canucks last night. Um, And uh, uh, the Canucks have had a brutal stretch lately. Uh, They were on a stretch of nine straight road games. They haven't played at home and some of this is because of the pandemic. They have not played at home since December the 14th. It's been over a month since they've had a home game. So uh, a big win for uh, them last night. And and if you're in Nashville, you, you got you got like you know we got to circle the wagons here and and not let this one get away. Uh, they will host the Winnipeg Jets on Thursday, and then the Canucks uh, finally going back home. They start a three-game homestand on Friday against the Florida Panthers. Other NHL news, and, and this is interesting, and uh, you know, wonder if uh, other leagues are going to follow um, the lead here. The NHL has decided after the All-Star break, which uh, begins on February 3rd, after the All-Star break, they will no longer test asymptomatic players, coaches, or staff that are fully vaccinated. Because what's happening is, is that, Guys are getting tested. They have no symptoms, and you know they they end up having to, you know to leave their team for ten days. Um, so they are going to the only time they're going to test asymptomatic individuals is going to be uh, if you're crossing the U.S. Canada border because Canada requires a test for anybody coming over the border. But otherwise, uh, they are going to stop asymptomatic testing. And look, the healthcare officials are saying, look, there is a good chance that we are all at some point going to get COVID. And it doesn't mean we're going to get sick, but we're all 
going to be exposed to COVID if we haven't been already. You know, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, what will you have symptoms or not? And one thing that we do know is that if you are vaccinated and you do get it, you're not going to die. Or it's very rare that people that are that are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, are killed by this. You know, you may get sick, but you're not going to die. And that is why, you know, you get tested. Or why you get vaccinated, I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, I think this is a good idea. You know, and, and it, you know, and it's, and it's one of the reasons why sometimes, you know, you look at the positivity numbers. I mentioned the one in the state of Georgia where it's 28%. There are people that, you know, a lot of those people that are in that 28% don't have symptoms. They've just been exposed. So, you know, how, how concerned about that should we be? Frankly, if you are exposed and you test positive and you're asymptomatic, in some ways, that's a good thing because it now means that your body is starting to build up antibodies and uh, uh, that's how we get herd immunity. So, you know, at the same time, you know, it, it's not a bad thing to be exposed, but it would be better if you're vaccinated and you get exposed and then, you know, you're not you don't have to worry about whether you'll be asymptomatic or not, because there's a better chance that you will be. Or if not, you're at least going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to get super sick. Uh, so anyway, but so we'll, it'll be interesting to see if any of the other professional sports leagues uh, follow uh, what the NHL is going to do here. We got to take another quick break. Back in a minute, you're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 52 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. We've only got a few minutes to go uh, this morning. A uh, couple of NFL notes. Dak Prescott, uh, who I skewered yesterday, and rightly so, by the way, uh, apologized yesterday uh, for his comments um, where he said, uh, you know, <laughs> good for the fans uh, for throwing uh, trash and water bottles, et cetera, at the officials at the end of their loss to the 49ers on Sunday. Um, he sent out a series of tweets yesterday uh, saying that he deeply regretted what he said after the game. Um, look, I, I killed him yesterday, and, and look, what you know, and great that he apologized, but at the end of the day, it's one of those things where you know, look, in, in all the years of working in college athletics, and I had to counsel a lot of young student athletes, and I always said to them, when a reporter or anybody else asks you a question, take a moment and think before you open your mouth. You know, if it takes you 15, 20 seconds to figure out what to say, that's fine, but think before you open your mouth. And for an athlete like Dak Prescott to say, uh, you know, credit to them for throwing stuff at the officials was just awful. And I I lost some respect for him. I absolutely did. I'll tell you what, uh, you would never hear Tom Brady say that, and I don't want to hold everything up to the Tom Brady filter. You would never hear him say something like that. Derek Carr, one of the classiest guys uh, in the NFL as far as I'm concerned, uh, you would never hear him say that or, or T.J. Watt or J.J. Watt. Or, and, you know, m most guys are going to be smart enough not to say something stupid-ass like that. So uh, great that he apologized, but still a stupid thing to say. And I, I hope to hell the Cowboys pulled him aside and said, what in the hell is the matter with you? Um, the Seahawks fired their defensive coordinator yesterday, uh, Ken Norton Jr. Uh, and uh, they also fired their passing game coordinator, Andre Curtis. Uh, somebody had to take the hit for the disappointing uh, season that Seahawks had. So it will be those two assistant coaches and they will be looking uh, 
for uh, for replacements for them. Uh, a lot of people are making a big deal out of the comments that Mike Tomlin made yesterday. Uh, he met with the media um, and, and basically said, look, you know, Ben Roethlisberger has basically hasn't he hasn't actually come out and said I'm retiring, but he has told everybody, you know, when they've asked him, is this your last game? And he said, most likely. So they're planning on him not being back. And maybe if he even wants to come back, it was, you know, that he wouldn't be able to because Mike Tomlin yesterday said, well, you know, if you're assuming he's not coming back, uh, you know, what are you going to do next year? I mean, look, the only people they have are Mason Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins. And Tomlin came right out yesterday and said that he's not sure either one of them are everyday players. He said they're going to get their chance, but he's not sure that those guys are the answer. But they said if you uh, could create a wish list of your next quarterback, you know, and, you know, what would you want? And he said, man, quarterback mobility. And we all know that for the last couple of years, Ben Roethlisberger has been the human Statue of Liberty. Even before the last few years, even when he was younger, Ben Roethlisberger was never the most nimble on his feet. So a lot of people are making a big deal saying he's throwing shade at at uh, Roethlisberger. And I, look, I don't know that it's that. I think this is more a um, an acknowledgement of where the game is now. You know, this is more about, uh, look, look what Josh Allen does for Buffalo. Yeah, he throws the ball really well, but he can also beat you with his feet. Look at Lamar Jackson does in Baltimore. He can beat you with his feet. You know, uh, you know, quarterbacks that can move now are what a lot of teams are looking for because it opens up so many more things in your playbook. So I don't know that it was necessarily a shot at uh at Big Ben, you know, I think it's just a fact of this is where the game of football is right now. That is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. Uh hey, it's Dolly Parton's 76th birthday today. She is, you know, we talk about the national treasure Betty White that just passed away uh, at the age of 99 just before her 100th birthday. Uh Dolly Parton, whether you like country music or not, Dolly Parton is a national treasure. She just is uh, uh, so talented. The amount of songs that she's written. She said she's written so many songs that, uh, you know, 100 years after she's gone, they can still find new stuff. Uh, but, you know, the career that she has had has been remarkable. A fun-loving woman, and uh, you got to love Dolly Parton. So happy 76th birthday, Dolly Parton. We're going to leave you today with one of her songs. This is The Code of Many Colors. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.